The way in which we operate is defined in large part by our memories. Memory is a core component of the human identity. In this show, we hope to explore the nuances of this fundamental aspect of our brains. These conversations aim to illustrate the strengths, weaknesses, and mysteries surrounding remembering and forgetting. I'm Isabel Nieves. And I'm Tanner Chalet. And this is Remembering and Forgetting, a podcast by Themester. Even though there might not be a physical reminder of it, our history is all around us. Most of the time, what part of history we decide to remember is subjective. On this episode, I talked with Alex Lichtenstein about his book, Marked, Unmarked, Remembered, A Geography of American History, and marked and unmarked landscapes that remind us of our nation's past. On this episode um, of the Themester podcast, we have Alex Lichtenstein. Uh, He is a professor of history at Indiana University, um, who has done an extensive amount of research on memory and forgetting in terms of um, sites that we commemorate, whether we leave them marked, unmarked, remembered, or forgotten. I'll be asking a lot of questions coming out of your book, uh, Marked, Unmarked, Remembered, um, A Geography of American uh, Memory. Um, And then a few from some of the writings that you've done Mm -hmm. for different studies. Um, And so in your book, you talk a lot about um, remembering unsavory landscapes, um, sites where traumatic episodes of certain groups have happened. Why should we remember these unsavory landscapes? Why is it important to do so for our nation's history? Well, as you know, remembering the past is often an exercise in hagiography and championing the great march of freedom or focusing on particular historical figures, statues, sculptures, statues that you want to remember, generals and uh, other heroic or supposedly heroic figures. Uh, So those sort of commemorations often hide the past, right? They hide the fact that the march of progress, whether it be westward expansion or American democracy, often came at a set of social costs for victims of those uh, developments, uh, including Native peoples, including workers, and especially in the United States, including African Americans. So on the one hand, I think too much of our commemorative statuary and uh, and physical landscape commemorates as well as forgets certain aspects of the past. So that needs to be corrected. Um, yeah, so I would say you know that's a false past, and it's much better to come to terms with the past and all of its messiness and cruelty and contradictions than to simply erect a false image. Why do you think that we're creating this false image and creating this false past and trying to forget certain traumatic episodes? Well, I mean, all societies, not just the United States, wants to tell itself a nice story about its national past, and that's to be expected, but I do think that there's a tendency in societies that uh, have been racked by social conflict, whether it be civil war, racism and white supremacy, colonialism, or the Holocaust, uh, run the danger of forgetting the costs of the past, of forgetting the pain of the past. And that's uh, not necessarily a positive way to engage in moving forward into a more equal and just and democratic Future. So on the one hand, it's a natural tendency, I think, to create a heroic past for your nation, but one does so at uh, the peril to truth, really. And the United States in particular, I think, has been 
especially bad at remembering, right? So that we glorify, I mean, again, the debate around the Confederate uh, (coughs) statues has been the most visible and obvious example in the past couple of years, right? So certain people get glorified and perhaps they do not even deserve to be glorified within a national past and other parts of the past get hidden because they're uncomfortable to discuss. Yeah, and I think that's interesting because a lot of the debates on um, Confederate um, statues, Confederate flags, a lot of people weren't aware of that history. So it just shows how well um, uh, at least leaders are pushing this false history um, or really just a lot of family memories of what those um, events, what those people uh, kind of meant to them. Um, But all these other people are just now learning about this history. Well, the problem with putting the past into public is that it generates a set of different kinds of responses, and it's hard to know who is the right to adjudicate that response. So, for example, right now in San Francisco, there's a big debate going on one I think that was quite similar to the one here at IU around the Klan mural in um, Woodburn Hall. Uh, there's a beautiful mural from the 1930s in a public high school in San Francisco, the George Washington High School, that portrays Washington, I would say, in a rather critical light. For example, as someone who advocated uh, and was you know, a slave owner himself or someone who advocated westward expansion at the expense of native peoples. When that mural was painted, it was really a counter-narrative to a heroic portrayal of Washington. Today, students of color in that high school want it painted over because they say it's, they find it denigrating. I'm not sure how one adjudicates those, those uh, whether one goes with how depictions of the past make people feel or whether one needs to be more aware of an accurate rendition of the intention of that commemoration. Clearly, with Confederate statuary, the explicit intention when those statues were erected on every southern courthouse lawn across the the South, it was designed to embody and glorify the lost cause of slavery and to justify the current cause when those things were put up of white supremacy. So there's really no argument in terms of the intention, no matter how much people want to say, well, that's just my heritage, that's my family, I'm proud of that, why shouldn't I be? That is... uh, that negates the actual intention of how, when, and why those things were put up where they are put up. What are the implications, um, and maybe that's a strong word to use, but what are the implications if we don't challenge memories um, or traumatic episodes of our nation's past? Well, I think the danger is that we move forward with a false image of what America looks like and looked like, and therefore it makes it much more difficult to incorporate the diversity and richness of current American life. If we don't understand the history of slavery and white supremacy, it makes it much more difficult to live honestly in uh, an interracial and racially egalitarian society. If we don't accept that westward expansion uh, wasn't just you know, the conquering of the frontier but actually included genocide of native peoples, 
If we don't recognize that, then we can't recognize current practices which might, for instance, reprise those things. If we don't admit that there were concentration camps in the United States during World War II, and these are commemorated, right, the Japanese-American internment camps, uh, it makes it more difficult for us to come to grips with the fact that we now have concentration camps on the border of the United States with Mexico. So it's really a question of being honest about the past so we can be honest about the present. After completing um, Marked, Unmarked, Remembered, um, a geography of American memory. What, um, out of all the sites that you documented, um, either marked or unmarked, um, which one stood out to you the most or the one that interested you the most? Now, I should say for those people who haven't seen the book that the book is as much uh, a, a documentation of my brother Andrew's photography as it is my uh, recapitulation of these sites. So the, the, to the degree that we present historical sites marked, unmarked, or remembered in this book, it, we present them visually through the lens of my brother's uh, camera. The one image that sticks with me is one that's in the section called Remembered. And our point there is that uh, the meaning we give to physical locations of the past takes place through social action, takes place through people's interaction with these spots. For example, and this wasn't, uh, isn't my favorite one necessarily, but uh, there's an amazing photograph he took of Confederate commemorators uh, celebrating, I guess it was um, <clears throat> Jefferson Davis's birthday or maybe inauguration uh, celebration, the 150th in 2011. And he got a photograph of three women dressed in Confederate dress who happened to be sitting on the bench that Rosa Parks sat on in 1955 when she boarded the bus in Montgomery, Alabama. So that's a powerful symbol of sort of how these places are contested. But the image that sticks with me is one from 2016. And that was a moment in which the mayor of Waco, Texas, made a public apology for a lynching that took place in that town in 1916 lynching of Jesse Washington in Waco, Texas. And the image is very powerful because it's not a photograph of an atrocity. It's a photograph of the descendants of Jesse Washington peering up at the balcony from which the uh, photographs of that lynching had been taken 100 years before, the balcony which also happened to be attached to City Hall. So uh, to me, this was and is a photograph and a place that suggests that remembering can carry with it redemption, not necessarily forgiveness, but a coming to account with the past, an apology on the part of the white mayor of this town, and uh, um, if not an acceptance of the apology, at least an acknowledgment by the descendants of Jesse Washington that someone had, had uh, admitted that this place was uh, traumatic ground for black people in this town and a memory of a terrible atrocity. So that to me remains a powerful image, yeah. When I was um, reading your book and I was looking at the images, I think what really stood out to me were the images um, about labor history, mm -hmm. um, specifically um, the Fisher body plant in Flint, mm -hmm. Michigan. Right. And that's because um, last summer, I actually went to Detroit, Michigan um, for a conference and I, I did a tour on one of the plants there. And Which one do you remember? I'm not River sure. River Rouge, probably. Yeah, right? probably. The big one, the huge one. I think one. it was in East Detroit. Uh -huh. And um, even just going on that tour, you can see all of the huge houses, you know, where um, 
and these in these factories, these buildings where labor was booming and those houses show the prosperity of Americans because of these um because of the industry. And I would say that, you know, Detroit, Michigan in, in of itself is an unmarked but seen um, landscape of failed industrialism yeah. within the U.S. and the same within Flint, Michigan and in that area. And I, I live in um, the region of northwest Indiana, mm. super close to Gary. Yes. And it's the same thing. You, right. you see the steel mills that are abandoned, the huge houses. Um, yeah, and I definitely saw or found that the labor history um, that's what was super interesting to me. And I feel like that, that was more of like the modern labor history. You also, um, document and, um, show through photos, um, like agricultural history. Um, I remember seeing a picture of a cotton field mm-hmm. and, um, you know, the, the Southern slave economy. Why do you, as a historian, believe that remembering labor history is important? Because, of course, it's important to remember um, the traumatic episodes that uh, the indigenous people of the nation went through and also African-Americans. Why do you also think that labor history was an important topic to discuss? Well, in part, it's because I am a labor historian. That is, that's what my own scholarship is about. I write the history of, of workers and laborers and particularly uh, their struggles for social and economic justice. So that's something that's important to me as a historian. Uh, secondly, it leaves pretty remarkable sites on the land, as you're noting, right? Big factories, you know, housing complexes, uh, environmental scars in the case of places like West Virginia. We have some photographs in there of West Virginia. Um, and it's and but I think most importantly, it's to recognize that the prosperity that these places signal—that is, the one-time prosperity when Detroit was so, the so-called arsenal of the world, right? Arsenal of the free world—rested on on struggles, struggles of working people. So that image that you note of Flint, Michigan, isn't just about industrial decline, although it certainly is of that, right? It's a parking lot where a factory used to be but a site at which there was a heroic struggle of auto workers to build uh, the United Automobile Workers against the opposition of General Motors and the business class, and that that successful struggle actually is what promoted the prosperity, how auto workers over the next generation were able to send their children to college and you know, buy their own homes and, and live decent, decently, a, a sort of a world that is beginning to fade away now materially as well you know, and economically. As well, and in the southern case, right, pictures of cotton fields. Although the one you're referring to actually is a way of illustrating the uh, murder lynching of Emmett Till in Mississippi in 1955. Um, but to note that the Jim Crow system of segregation and white supremacy that structured the southern social order uh, was rested on an economic order, which, as you know, dates back to slavery an economic order that, that depended on the labor of uh, black people on in cotton fields and many other industries as well. So I think labor histories are particularly it, – its physical remains are everywhere, right? Many of these sites are very specific to you know a particular racial atrocity, a battle between native people and the army, uh, internment camps. But labor history is, is really every community in this country – has a labor history, right? Has an abandoned factory 
now usually a condo, uh, <laughs> like the one in uh, Lawrence, Massachusetts, right? It's just now a shopping complex is a site of this incredible struggle that went on there 100 years ago. I remember having a student once from Lawrence, Massachusetts, and she said, oh, yeah, you know, <clears throat> my uh, my grandparents worked in the textile mills, but I never heard about the strike of 1912. That's in the community in which she grew up. So these pasts get buried even though they're physical reminders of them everywhere. So by pointing out the physical reminder, we hope that people like you will take a look at these places either as a tourist or just as someone walking down the street and ask themselves about the past. I mean, particularly Northwest Indiana is a really amazing place, that whole stretch of mills and uh, other industrial sites from Gary all the way up to the south side of Chicago not all of which is abandoned. There's still working mills there, but there are amazing sites there. One that we didn't take a photograph of, but that we wanted to do, is the um, Memorial Day Massacre, 1937 strike against Republic Steel, and I forget how many, nine, 10, 11 workers were killed by the police. There's a physical site there, right on the Indiana-Chicago border, uh, which I want to go look at sometime. Like a lot of the events that were covered um, all relate back to the growth of the nation. No matter how unsavory the landscapes are, it all leads back to how the nation grew. Um, and, and you would think that's important to, to remember um, because how did we get here? But there's these false memories um, which which doesn't necessarily accurately portray that growth. I think that's a really important observation. So I mean, sort of the three axes of our of our we had marked, unmarked, remembered, but the themes that we focused on primarily were uh, Native American history, labor history, and African American history. Uh, and all three of those histories, I think, are histories of the costs of growth. Right, westward expansion is is presented often as this great march of civilization westward onto the frontier. Uh, but in fact, of course, Native peoples paid an enormous cost for that form of so-called progress. Ditto with industrialization, which provided uh, you know, our modern economy all to the good, but the social cost to working people was, was very high. And obviously, uh, in the United States, economic growth has depended very heavily but unacknowledged on the history of slavery in the 19th century and segregation in the 20th. So calling attention, I guess, to the costs of the heroic march forward of growth is really essential. Uh, the one sort of theme that we considered doing and we just left out of the book was environmental history. Right? And that strikes me as particularly important right now. As I'm speaking, I gather Trump is giving a speech about what a great environmental steward he is. It's almost laughable. But, uh, but the point is, is you know, if we don't reckon with the costs, the environmental costs of growth, it makes it very, very hard to contemplate how we have to change what we understand as economic growth and a healthy economy unless we're going to tank the entire planet in the next generation. So – um, so there too, I think, you know, it's recognizing the, the costs of progress that matters. Do you think that there is a certain way that we go about, um, you know, as Americans and as Americans dealing with these memories of traumatic episodes in our history, do you think that there's a certain way that we go about remembering events of violence and tra uh, 
tragedy. Unfortunately, yes. Uh, you know, again, I think it's natural to try and heroicize one's national past, and this is all something all societies do. But there are other societies that have had particularly violent or traumatic pasts that have managed to come to grips with it in a positive way. There are two in particular that I know well, uh, South Africa, where I spend a lot of time, and uh, and Germany, where I've spent some time, in, in Berlin in particular. And these are two examples of societies that have tried, I think fairly successfully actually, to write into their memories and to physically create a set of sites and memorials that represent the difficult parts of their past. In Germany, obviously, the Holocaust uh, and the war itself. In South Africa, a system of segregation and white supremacy, unfortunately similar to that in the United States. They're light years ahead of the United States in terms of coming to grips with that. Um, so, um, so the United States, I guess, has a lot of work to do in terms of what in the South African case is called truth and reconciliation, right? And we have very little acknowledgement. I mean, increasingly, obviously, historians put this forward, but very little acknowledgement of the painful parts of our past. Um, I'm not sure why that's a particularly bad American habit, but I do think the United States stands out. Um, as a country that rested very heavily on slavery but is particularly reluctant to acknowledge that in public forms. I mean it's remarkable. Again, I hate to go back to and always pick on the Confederacy but it is remarkable. I mean the last time I went to the Mississippi Delta, there's a wonderful site there which is the recreation of the courtroom in which the murderers of Emmett Till, this is a 15-year-old boy who was lynched in Mississippi in 1955 for looking the wrong way at a white woman. And the people who lynched him, everyone in the community knew who it was, all white jury, they're acquitted. The courtroom and the courthouse are still there and a group of black and white citizens in this town, tiny, tiny town in the Mississippi Delta, have worked to recreate the courtroom. And you can walk in there and you can almost feel the ghost of this trial, a uh, very important trial nationally in terms of putting civil rights on the national stage. And then you step out of the courtroom and back onto the city square, town square, and you notice standing right in front of it, still there, built in 1903, is a Confederate monument to you know the Confederate dead. It's still there. Um, so... <laughs> That's pretty astounding. That would be like going to, you know, see topography of terror in the center of Berlin and stepping out to see, a, you know, a, a statue of Himmler or something. And it's just it's completely at odds with the attempt to create a different set of memories. So that's quite peculiar. And in the United States, I think in that case, it's it's regional. There was a civil war. There's you know still disagreement about its causes and its nature. Uh, that is the section south and north don't always agree about this. So that's one aspect of it. Um, I guess I'm still struggling to explain why the United States is so reluctant as a collectivity to come to grips with the painful parts of, of our past. But we are, and I think compared to Germany and South Africa, it really stands out. So it seems like, you know, although the United States has a lot of work to do, we're making these um, these slow improvements to, you know, accurately remember um, 
unsettling parts of our history, such as the courtroom, trying to recreate it, but then going out and seeing a Confederate statue. This seems like, yeah, there's a, there's a lot of um, great work being done, but there's like these contradictions yeah. um, within these memories. What do you think um, are the implications of those contradictions? Well, on the one hand, one could argue, I wouldn't in the case I just cited, but one could argue that, you know, the past is messy and people's memories of it uh, and attachment to it are differential. There's not always, nor should there always be agreement. The past requires dialogue and different points of view. So that's potentially a good, but sometimes when those points of view just seem so diametrically opposed, one wonders how they can share the same public space. So I don't have an answer to that. I mean, some of the best museums that one goes to, you know, puts these things into dialogue and, and recognizes that, you know, they're, they're different uh, accounts of the past, sometimes deliberately, sometimes inadvertently. In Mississippi, um, now there are two wings to the State Museum. One wing focuses on the heroic phases of the civil rights movement. It's very powerful. It's a fantastic museum. The other wing is sort of about Mississippi history, and it's relatively unchanged. It celebrates Mississippi history in a rather uncritical way, failing to acknowledge that Mississippi history is entirely bound up with white supremacy. There's no other way to understand the history of the state. But that side is still narrated as if, you know, it's just this ordinary state past being, you know, marching forward, uh, whether displacement of Native Americans or enslavement of African Americans is just an incident in that past, not a central element of it. So those are incommensurate pasts, and I'm not sure how they can be reconciled. Um, on the other hand, yeah, I mean, sometimes I think dialogue or contradictory understandings of the past is, is inevitable and perhaps even useful. So... Um, I'm not sure how to adjudicate that, but I think that that's what trying to think about public history is all about, is figuring out ways of, of coming up with mixed messages that are both understandable and not offensive. I mean, again, this, the, the example I started with, the mural in San Francisco, painted as a critique of the American past, now understood locally as somehow indeed the school board people testifying before the school board said this mural was painted by a colonialist designed to, you know, denigrate Native American and black people. Actually, it was painted by a communist who disagreed with the national narrative of heroic George Washington and was trying to, to rewrite it with his art. So does his intention matter or is it only the way that people interpret this image today that matters? I don't have an easy answer to that, actually. What do you think um, IU, Indiana University students, um, can do to open this dialogue um, about, you know, remembered and unremembered, or forgotten, remembered and forgotten um, landscapes um, that build our history, our nation's history? What do you think that we as students can do to open up this dialogue more? Well, the glib answer is take a history class, but uh, that's just propaganda for my department. Uh, the reason I would say take a history class, though, is something you could do just on your own, which is to just as, you again, you were describing when you went to Detroit, 
Make yourself more aware of your surroundings. What are you looking at? Every single place you go in this country has some aspect of the past written on it physically, even if it's not marked. Right? The houses that you pass, you know, people lived there decades, centuries ago. The graveyards that you pass, there are people buried there. I mean, there's this little, I live on the east side of town, and there's this kind of new housing development that's been going up there. And there's a tiny little graveyard there, which has been fenced off. And if you go in there, you notice that uh, there were people who fought and died in the Civil War. Now, I know we're in southern Indiana, but they died fighting for the Union. So someone flying a Confederate flag in southern Indiana might want to go look at that graveyard to see that some of their ancestors actually might have fought against the Confederacy. That's a nice example. So I think it's a, way, it's, it's, it's a question of being aware of your physical surroundings and recognizing that they embody a past that goes back long before your lifetime. And if my brother and I wanted to accomplish anything in this book – it was just encouraged people to to look around them and to recognize that the physical past, even in a place where it appears to be obliterated, uh, such as a factory that's been torn down, it's still there in some way, shape, or form. And the more that we can be aware of that, the more we're able to to reflect upon and reckon with that past, or so I hope. Um, the one last thing that I wanted to mention, and that actually ties in perfectly with what you just said about being able to recognize your surroundings. I'm not sure if you're aware of the history of People's Park. Which part of the history? The the uh, the black-owned uh, yeah. uh, shop that was there and was burnt down by the Klan in 1969 or 1970. That exact yeah, history right. and right. how, you know, we commemorate – we do commemorate the park – um, in um, a different way, we commemorate it in uh, remembrance of anti-war protesters. But why do you think we don't commemorate what used to what used to stand there even before that? Right. Um, well, a black, less heroic yeah. story, right? A le- less heroic narrative, a narrative that is rather shameful rather than something that the community wants to be proud of, which is anti-war. How is the anti-war protest commemorated there? Is there a plaque? Um, I think that, I mean, they, the whole reason that they called it People's Park um, was to commemorate a protest that happened, I believe, in San Francisco. In Berkeley, right. right, It was in Berkeley, yeah. um, For these anti-war protesters. And um, I think eventually the town of Bloomington ended up acquiring the park but um, they and they continue to call it People's Park, but I'm not sure if there's a plaque there. Hmm. But um, I just recently found out about that, and I was like, how come no one, no one's remembering this? Um, and even like some of the building names. Well, um, right. I mean, if, if, if students wanted to do something uh, locally and productive, they could investigate the names of the buildings. You don't want to know who Jordan Hall is named after, for example. But, yeah. Uh, Someone who, on the one hand, very important figure historically, but had some rather unsavory ideas about race and genetics, if I recall, right? So, um, and this is something that's going on in a lot of university campuses. University of Minnesota is having a big discussion about, you know, which people, buildings. And it's amazing how, I have to say, thinking about my own education, so I was an undergraduate at Yale University which famously or infamously has a a college, which is sort of like a dorm, called Calhoun College, which is named after John C. Calhoun, the pro-slavery senator from the 19th century. 
I had no idea when I was a student there that Calhoun College was linked to this pro-slavery ideologue. And students recently objected to this and got the name of the college changed, which is pretty interesting. Uh, also interesting, though, was how deeply some alumni dug in their heels and said, no, we want this to still be Calhoun College. It's not as if it was named Calhoun College in the 1830s when Calhoun was a respected senator, even though or maybe because he was a pro-slavery advocate. It was named after him in the 1930s. So you have to ask yourself, well, why? Was this a moment in which Southerners were feeling particularly uh, at odds with Northern liberalism at Yale? And so they decided to sort of show their muscle by naming this Calhoun College? I don't know, but someone could do research on that. So it really is not just a question. We, ha we have this idea that somehow these monuments or buildings are named and that writes something into stone, although sometimes it does. Uh, but we never question why they were named that at a particular moment. Sometimes it was to glorify people, but sometimes it was to glorify rather unsavory characteristics of people. Yeah, I, I think that you would agree that um, if you're an IU student listening to this or even just a member of the faculty or member of the community, um, look up the true history of People's Park and look in, again, like you said, look into um, the names of the buildings at Indian, Indiana University or um, even that cemetery. That's something that you could do locally um, to try to make yourself aware of these landscapes um, and to get a better and more accurate look of our history. Yep. Even just even here. It's interesting labor history around. in this town as well, in the in the RCA plant that's now closed. So unsavory events in our history may be hard for us to want to remember, but it is important to do so for the present state of our history. If you enjoyed this talk, Professor Lichtenstein is teaching the semester course Civil Rights and Freedom Summer this fall. Remembering and Forgetting is a podcast produced for Themester at IU. Special thanks to IU's College of Arts and Sciences, Tracy B., Ken Smith, and the Media School for today's episode. Music for this episode by Jack Brown. For more discussions on memories surrounding the tragedies of the Holocaust, the mysteries of brain science, and more, check out the rest of Remembering and Forgetting. Thank you for listening. <laughs>